Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. Well, welcome everybody. Today we get to play with a great author and uh, a guy who's really had quite a life. And uh, we're going to be talking with David Richards the entire show. And he's, like I said, an author. He's got a couple of books and... Um, one right now has just been out a little while and has been going through the process of it's on Amazon and, and he's done well. He's a bestseller there and, and several of the other platforms that it's on. And, um, and we're going to talk about the name of the book and everything that he is about. But before we go there, I wanted to mention your bio just a little bit because you were First of all, I'd like to thank you for your service. Thank you. Um, it's it's very important for for all of us that, that there are people like you that are willing to go and protect us from from stupid people, and uh, we I really really thank you for doing that. And um, I remember into in nineteen ninety one when uh, when Desert Storm happened. And it was it was quite an experience. I imagine your experience is um, something that has left you for your whole life. It's and and you remember that thoroughly. I would imagine. I do. Well, I was part of the ceasefire campaign for Desert Storm, but I was part of the initial landing force for um, Restore Hope in Somalia. And yeah, we just last December was 30 years uh, ago that that happened, which seems ridiculous because I can still feel the tension of uh, going into Africa at 4.30 in the morning and just being on pins and needles. So, but it's, it's definitely stuck with me. What's it like? I have often wondered because I know in Desert Storm, we landed close to half a million people in into that area. What's it like being around all that humanity? Well, Somalia was very different. So the ceasefire campaign, we were just off the shore of Kuwait uh, for Desert Storm. So um, there were just three ships with Navy Marines on them. For Somalia, it was, we had very limited intel. I don't know how much intelligence like our higher ups had, but we were told there were going to be a thousand armed Somalis waiting for us at the beach. And at the, you know, going ashore at the beach, they're going to be like 200 Marines. Um, so it was, it was fairly intense. And then once you get ashore, it was a very different experience because it wasn't armed Somalis. It was photographers at news crews. It was very <laughs> surreal. It was, it was like the scene out of apocalypse. Now, if you've ever seen that movie, when they like, they have dancers in the middle of the jungle dancing for the GIs and you're like, what is this? Um, but it was, it was like, they, I remember, like this camera guy was in front of us and he would not get out of the way. We had to move our 40 ton amphibious vehicle out of his way so that we could continue <laughs> on the mission. Um, and then we were initially, my responsibility was to confiscate weapons and ammo or confiscate weapons from people trying to enter the airfield to enter Mogadishu international airport. And so we did that. And then eventually we made it back to the airport and, and the airport was just chaos because it was, I mean, it was, military people it was civilians it was journalists it was it was chaos and you it's it's a weird relationship you develop with your environment when you're carrying a weapon because it's you're absolutely very judicious and obviously the use of when you are going to fire it but having that gives you a sense of discernment into what to look for um but it was it was pretty hectic it was it was a unforgettable experience for sure now was that around the same time as the, the, the of course they made a movie called black hawk down yep so black hawk down captures the events of october of 1993 so this is about uh the movie takes place about 11 months after we landed and we were there like the force i was with the 15th marine expeditionary unit we were kind of the box or the door kickers we went there to kick the door in and allow US fall on forces to come in. And then when we started trying to tear down the warlord regimes uh, that were established and kind of create equality, that's when things started to get dicey. And that's what led to the events in Black Hawk Down. And so that that was, you know, that was a very intense movie. Oh, and yeah. and sadly we we lost some guys uh, during during that 
little expedition, but uh, uh, which turned out to be not such a little thing. It became a big deal. It did. I remember it's, it's amazing how time flies back then. So we went from we left Somalia in February of 1993. We went up to Kuwait for like a week and then we went to Bahrain for three weeks to fix our equipment. And then eventually we made our way back to San Diego in April of that year. And I remember coming back from the we were doing training in 29 Palms, California, which is this huge Marine Corps base. I mean, it's literally people have gotten lost and died in, on the base because it's just so big with mountains and just tons of desert. Um, and I remember we were coming back from a training exercise and I picked up a newspaper, USA Today, and it had Somalis carrying one of the dead pilots on the front page. And I was just like, what just happened? Like, how did we go from they were happy to see us when we first got there to this in 11 months or 10 months. It was, it was amazing. Is it true that um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that, that they had a societal system that invo involved warlords and different people who had power. And then th we came in and we're trying to, to change the system, change the society and the warlords weren't going to have any of it. Um. Yes, yes. There was one warlord in particular, Mohammed Farad Adid, who was the biggest warlord. He was the one who controlled the food supplies. And then there were other smaller warlords, but he was the biggest. And so he kind of ran the show, not just in Mogadishu, but really for all of Somalia, because um, all the food and supplies usually came in through the port and the airport. And so what we were trying to do was bring him down which he did not like and bring the other warlords up, which they were all for. And that's where things started to get dicey because it was, we were trying to nation build in a place that that wasn't going to go over well, especially when there was one guy who had more power than everybody else. And an absolute power corrupts absolutely. And yeah. in this case, it was very much that way. And he wasn't going to go without a fight. Very much so. Very much so. In fact, his, um, I don't remember if it was his, I think it was his son was a U.S. Marine. Um, and I don't remember if he came to Mogadishu or not, but eventually uh, he got out of the service and then came back to lead their tribe or their clan for a little while from what I remember. Interesting. And, and again, I just want to thank you for sure, your service. Yeah. Uh, that was that that was really important that you do that. My son's in the Air Force, and okay. so he's a mechanic awesome. and, and stuff. So, but uh, you were on the front lines. You were a, a door kicker, and that's a completely different experience than being a mechanic fixing stuff. So, yeah, it was. Um, we did some. Uh, there were some cool things. Like it was we. Uh, so I landed at the airfield, spent uh, I don't know part of the day there on the initial day. And then the unit that I was assigned to it actually secured the port. And that's where all the Navy ships were going to come in and drop off supplies and everything else. And so sometime in the mid-afternoon, I went back to them. And the officers from that unit and I, um, we would, like, we would, we set up our, our hooch, if you will, or we're going to stay right at the very front of the port facility. And very, like, Spartan warriors, I remember doing this, this is crazy, to think of it today but we would strip down in front of like god and the world to see and clean ourselves with stridex pads like those little facial pads because that's all we had like we didn't have running water like i didn't i didn't shower for three weeks it was ridiculous um but very very spartan-esque if you've ever heard or read up about the spartans they used to in front of their enemies like get naked and brush their hair like is like we're ready um and so we did that with stridex pads which uh, probably wasn't as cool as brushing hair, but we didn't have any hair. So <laughs> that, that is something. So, so we've set this up that you were a military guy. You worked, you were in the, the uh, Marines and you were, what would one would be called a tough guy and that, uh, and that you worked, you know, with, and you carried a gun and you knocked down doors. You did all the stuff that military guys do. Yep. And then you came home and became a yoga, yoga instructor. How the hell did that happen? Uh, wasn't part of my plan. Um, <laughs> I can only imagine it wasn't, uh, the biggest thing I would say was I spent three years in Japan as a kid because my dad was in the Marines and exposure to Eastern philosophy had a tremendous impact on me, especially 
like understanding that there's kind of a romance living in Japan as a 10 year old and hearing about samurai or hearing about ninja and all this cool invisible shadow stuff they did. Um, but there was also this idea of stillness and of beauty. And that was something that just, I didn't appreciate. I didn't see as readily in American culture as I did in Japanese culture. And um, I came back and I got into meditation a little bit when I was a teenager in high school and tried a little bit in the Marines, but also went away from it. And I got out in 2006 and I just decided I read a Sports Illustrated article about football players, professional football players using yoga to strengthen their core, their midsections. And I thought, oh, well, if, if it's good for them, then I can do it, too. Like that, if that was my masculinity test, like, OK, if, if tough NFL players are doing yoga, I can do yoga. And I went to my first class and it was a gentle class. Um, I didn't really sweat and I wasn't sure what to make of it. And then two days later, I went to a different class with a different style, different instructor. And like 40 minutes into class, I am drenched in sweat from moving my body. And I'm like, what is happening? What is like, I do not understand what's happening. And the amazing thing about yoga was my, my head was so full of noise between getting out of the Marines, trying to learn what it meant to be in the civilian world and do a corporate job. And when I got onto a yoga mat, my mind just got quiet. And there was some part of me that was like, I want more of that. Whatever that quiet is, like, I, I want that. I want that. And so by my second class, I was hooked. I started going to class probably two or three times a week. And within, I think, nine or 10 months, I became an instructor and just continued to move forward from there. And it's just been such an integral part of my life just to appreciate um, the balance and that there's something inside us it's greater than just the mind or the body that we associate with i couldn't agree more now you you also were uh, um you're a yoga instructor you're an author you've got some really unique titles to your books i really i really i really like because we're going to talk about uh, love letters to the virgin mary in a second but before we go there yeah i wanted to ask you about whiskey and yoga Whiskey and yoga, that was a snapshot of my life. Um, that was 2017 when I published that book uh, for 11 years. So I got out in 2006 from the Marines. And for about 11 years, I had tried to write horror stories. Um, I wanted to be the next Stephen King because he was uh -huh. an author that I read that really had a huge impression on me growing up. And part of what I, the story I told myself in the Marines was I couldn't write because one, you never knew when you're going to have to go deploy somewhere. And two, I always knew that I was only living in a place for two or three years at a time. And that was such a transient lifestyle for me. I just couldn't kind of develop the routine or the rigor or the structure or the discipline to become a writer. And so I wrote poetry towards the end of my military career. Um, but I just couldn't figure out the writing thing for 11 years. I kept writing these horror stories and I'd get about hundred pages in and the characters would fall apart and the story would lose steam. And I would get so frustrated. And between that and traveling with work, I just was like, like, this is my dream. And why can't I make this happen? Um, and so as a yoga instructor, I, people have a lot of perceptions about yoga instructors and they lead clean lives. And I had an, uh, an Indian friend of mine who said, oh, if you drink, that's fine. Like, there's plenty of, there's yoga for everybody. I'm like, okay, cool. Because I'm not giving that up anytime soon. Um, and so for Christmas in December 2016, someone gave me a whiskey and yoga t-shirt. And I was like, oh, that's pretty ironic. I like that. Because I, I was a big scotch drinker at the time. And um, around that same time, I started reading Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And in the first or second chapter of that book, he says, what is your purpose in life? And I got to tell you, Kevin, that question knocked me on my ass. I was like, what? You're telling me my life has a direction, like a there's a, a compass that I can tune into. And it was this revolutionary idea. And I was so inspired that I grabbed a notebook and pen. And I remember I wrote my first ever life purpose statement. And it was the purpose of my life is to help people find their purpose in life. and in that moment, I knew I was going to get away from horror stories. And I said, my first book is going to be called Whiskey and Yoga about helping people find their purpose in life. And I love the idea behind it. But then I kind of struggled with what do whiskey and yoga actually have in common? Like besides an ironic T-shirt. 
And it took me a while. And then I finally came up with, well, they both, they both tell the story of the spirit. In whiskey, the spirit is in a cask and it ages in a cask and it gets finished in another cask. And for yoga, it's the spirit that's in the body and the journey that the spirit goes on to kind of figure things out. And, um, and that was good. I was good with that. And I wrote, uh, I wrote for about four months into 2000, early 2017 before I stopped. I had 200 pages written, all autobiographical. And I was like, this, this is not the way to go. Like, this is, <laughs> no one's going to give a shit about how I found my purpose in life. And I still had probably like 300 pages more to write. I'm like, this is not, this is not it. So I scrapped all 200 pages, which in itself was a kind of a, a frustration, but it was also part of my growth as a writer because I realized I had to write those 200 pages to realize this is in the direction I would need to go. So I sat down one Saturday, I wrote a 10 chapter outline about helping people find their purpose in life. And then the next two months I wrote the book and it came out that fall and it's the realization of a dream. Well, you know, David, I got to tell you, I've been doing this a while. And what I find is, and what I have found is that that's one of the cornerstone questions of our lives is why am I really here? Yeah. What am I about? What am I here to do? Because, you know, you can get the, and you had a corporate job and you, you were successful in the military. You were successful in the corporate job. You were successful at yoga, but it wasn't complete. And there came a point in, in your time, like there did mine as well, but it was like, you know, I had a corporate job. I had the house. I had the kids. I had the, uh, the bucket or the, uh, you know, the picket fence. I had the 2.3 dogs and all that kind of stuff. And, but it just didn't seem like it was enough. It didn't. Yeah. Why am I really here? Am I going to be on my deathbed when I'm 89 and go, Jesus, why did I mess? Why did I waste my entire life doing something that I didn't like that much and had no impact on humanity at all? And uh, I didn't want that. And I suspect that this, for you, it's the same way. It really is. And in 2017, that was kind of when things really started to shift because even in that, in that book in whiskey and yoga, I had the idea for my second book and I, I didn't, I liked the idea about this. It was this idea that your mind is an ocean and that's where all your memories are. Everyone you've ever met is in your mind is an ocean and your awareness is a lighthouse where you place your attention as a lighthouse. And so most people develop patterns in their lives where they create the same thing over and over again. And the lighthouse just goes in the same thing day after day. And it was a cool idea. I wrote like three or four pages on it in whiskey and yoga. And then I went away from it for about 18 months and uh, I just came back to it. And I remember like when I had the idea of, Oh my God, this is a story. Like I can tell a story. It was exciting to me because whiskey and yoga was me talking about me. Whereas the lighthouse keeper was going to be me telling a story and creating mood and creating characters and like creating this world. And that, was kind of what I wanted to do. It wasn't necessarily horror stories, although there was some spooky elements in this in the book, but it was so exciting to me. And it was absolutely me pulling on that thread. I got into, like in 2017, I got into the Tony Robbins community. Uh, in 2017, I became a professional coach. Uh, I became a certified life coach and I was still doing the corporate thing, but I like I knew that I had scratched the itch and now something was like, it was all coming to. And when the lighthouse keeper came out, it was just at the beginning of the pandemic, um, which was good and bad. It was good in the way that I was so proud of the book and what it had become, but obviously no one was really focused on books in March of 2020 because it was like, okay, the world is shutting down what's happening. Um, and that led into obviously, uh, love letters. And love letters to the Virgin Mary doesn't sound like it seems to be what it seems to be. Does that make sense? <laughs> I don't know whether that makes sense or not, but, but there's a lot more to it than you writing the love letters to uh, the mother of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So love letters is intense. Um, the initial idea came to me in October of 2019. I was going through a breakup, and initially it was focused on social media, Kevin, and it was the idea that, you know, at the time when I was doing research for whiskey and yoga, I think I, the, the statistic was that we are checking our smartphones 85 times a day. Mm -hmm. And now I checked it last year. And I think it's up to 110 times. So it's like once every 10 minutes, we're checking our smartphones. And part of what I wanted to answer was why, like to what end, if, if there are 
I don't know, 4 billion people on the planet who have access to smartphones and probably more than that. But if we're all becoming addicted to this technology, what does it mean for us as a species? And the story evolved uh, to January. Uh, by January 2020, it started to take shape a little bit more. And it was really about, well, who we are is more important than what we do. But what we do is constantly shaping who we are. And that's kind of the, I was going to call it being, B-E-I-N-G. And that was kind of the direction the book went. Then the pandemic happened. I had a very profound kind of a spiritual incident. Um, and uh, speaking of social media, then the, the weekend after that incident, I saw a picture online and I was like, I'm going to make this picture a part of the story. And so it became this fantastic journey of a a man from thousands of years ago who had trapped his identity in a memory. And that memory was introduced in this picture on Instagram in 2020. And it became this story of King David uh, being resurrected and what that would be like. Um, but it's, it is, it's got layers of complexity to it in terms of there's kind of a time travel element to it with consciousness there's a Roman general who plays significantly into the whole story. Um, there's a particular God of thunder who's in the story. So there's a, a quite a bit going on in the, in the story. And just for those of you who may not be aware, uh, King David was, uh, he became, he was, he was the David and Goliath story. And then he became King and his son was Solomon. And yeah. he took it over from Saul. And so that, that all is based in, in biblical tradition and, and stuff. And so what gave you the idea to, that, that his memory was based in a picture and that you should bring him back, what was it, 3,000 years later? 3,000 years, yeah. Um, it was really it was the idea that if you think of – if you follow the Bible story, King David is, he's, when, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to say, Hey, you're going to have a kid. The angel says, your son is going to be the son of David. And so part of what I wanted to ask was, well, how would David become a Christian? Because obviously King David, if he's born a thousand years, if he lived a thousand years before Jesus could not be a Christian no. because he wasn't born. So he would have to be resurrected and then it was what would draw him back to the store? Like what would draw him into realizing that he was meant to be with Mary and that Jesus was his son, like if he were resurrected. And so it was this idea that he would have to have had a life during the time of Rome, but after Jesus. Um, and so I don't want to give too much of the way, too much of the story away, but it was this idea that, he had lived a life also as a Roman general uh, and had an experience there that awakened him to, and that's kind of what the picture is about, that awakened him to his identity. Oh, interesting. Now, by the way, I, and I, I, we haven't talked about this, so I, I'm not sure I should ask this, but no, go ahead. you had mentioned that you had a spiritual moment. Yeah. Um, and I, I ergo not let that go without fucking <laughs> oh about that because somebody's yeah. saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said something. What did he, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I went out to a mastermind with Jack Canfield. And if you're, if you're listening in the audience, you don't know what a mastermind is, it's where you, get together with like-minded people. And there's one person maybe in particular who's had tremendous amount of success. And it's this idea that collective thinking between that group is beneficial for everyone who participates in the group. And so Jack Canfield has sold 500 million books over the course of his career, the chicken soup for the soul series. And I was supposed to be part of a group of 17 people who are going to go out to this mastermind in Santa Barbara, California. Well, because of the pandemic. By that way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, there are only because of the pandemic, only six people decided to make the trip. And we ended up, we were supposed to meet at Jack's house, but because of COVID, he was high risk. So we did, we started doing video conferencing. And so we met, we ended up working out of his, his the president of his company, a woman named Patty Aubrey, we worked out of her house uh, to do these sessions. And you'd spend 45 minutes in the hot seat with Jack kind of pitching your idea. And so initially I just wanted to talk about 
this third book being, but they wanted to know about the lighthouse keeper. So we started talking about that when it was my turn for the hot seat. And I sat for my 45 minutes and we're going back and forth. And Jack said something about, um, look, you know, talk to the CEO of Ford. And I was like, huh, the CEO of Ford. And I was like, who is the CEO of Ford? And then I was like, well, I think he means Henry Ford because the law of attraction, Henry Ford, if you don't know, built an eight cylinder engine when people said it couldn't be done. And for 18 months, he told his engineers to just, you'll get it done. You'll figure it out. And they said, it's impossible. It's impossible. 18 months later, we have the eight cylinder engine. So at the end of my 45 minutes, Jack says, you've got a year. I was like, what? Like, what the, what does that mean? I've got a year. Okay. So I didn't understand. I didn't ask him like what it actually meant. I was just like, okay, that's weird. Went home. And then the last day of March, it was a Tuesday, 2020. I was doing a meditation through Dr. Joe Dispenza, a guided meditation. And Dispenza has done tremendous amount of work in the quantum field and this idea that you can pull the awareness out of the body and have these mystical experiences. And so I did a meditation and I, it's in, it's in the book, but I experienced what I can only describe as my judgment day. And it was like a download of information through my pineal gland. There were no, there weren't like moments of my life being played out, but it was just this push of information that was like these themes on why my life had turned out the way it had. And why, like I've been married, divorced twice, the military, like all, like all this stuff, the way it happened. And the meditation lasted about an hour and I came out of it and I was like in my bedroom and I was like, okay, it's a pandemic. I just met a man who I've never met before, you know, a week and a half ago who told me I have a year, which was some cryptic advice in a mastermind. And now I've had my judgment day. Okay. Like this is, this is next level. And then that Saturday is when I saw the picture that inspired me to write the story. What a coincidence. <laughs> it was, it, it was, um, you know, the crazy part Kevin was at the time. I, let me caveat, let me preface this by saying in 2016, the last horror story I tried to write was about a failed second coming. And it was the idea that like God had fallen asleep or like was no longer there. And the angels, the angels and devils were just fighting like on earth and like humans were just casualties of war. And it was I like, I, and I never, again, I get same recipe. I wrote about 120 pages and then it petered out, but I wrote the ending. Cause I was like, I had a, I had a cool idea for the ending. I'm like, this could be pretty cool. And so I wrote the ending and I was like, Oh, that's good. And I'm never going to write that thing. Um, but it, but then like, then this all, this all happened and it was weird because I was like, okay, I got it. Global pandemic. The world has shut down. I'm writing this story. I see this beautiful woman. I'm making her a part of the story. It goes back to ancient Rome. Got it. Okay. Nothing. And then for the next, I, so I, I wrote an outline of the book really, really cerebral in a journal and I had two different color pens and one was the voice of conditional love and the other was the voice of unconditional love. And they just kind of went back and forth and had this conversation. And the outline ended up being about 110 pages. And it was really, it was kind of really beautiful. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, I could print this. People would love this. And I went back to work the night. I wrote that on a weekend, probably the first weekend in April after I saw the picture. And then the next week I went back to work. And as I went through the week, I'm like, ah, oh, this is, the story's not right. And so the next weekend I rewrote the outline again and that went on for like four weeks. And then finally the fourth week is when it started to get this Roman feel to it. And I was like, okay, I've got something now. But it took me from that point, it took me about 18 months until I figured out how to tell the story. And an incredible story it is too, because it, it really outlines for us and for people something that a lot of people really up until lately, I think I think that what we're finding is in the last 10 years, things are changing a little bit because oh, yeah. people are getting more involved, more interested in not not necessarily buying everything that was written 2000 years ago, but now what is happening today and how are how we can change everything about what's going on, including who we are inside. And I know you talk about that in the book. Very much so. It's. 
you know, that's the, and that's kind of been the gift of yoga. I, I always laugh when I tell people this, but yoga led me to quantum physics because the whole idea of yoga is there is an internal world that most people are completely, or not, I won't say completely, but are largely unfamiliar with. And whether it's, you have a voice in your head that you talk to, or you get frustrated at someone and you perceive them to be a certain way, what you don't realize is you are projecting that identity onto them that's not how they're acting that's your perception of how they're acting and so as i got into yoga and hearing professors or instructors say you are not your body you're not your mind you're not your body you're the thing that witnesses and observes the mind and the body that led me to quantum physics quantum physics led me to dr dispenza and what i came to appreciate was with the whole model of quantum, quantum physics is fascinating because it says 99.9% .9 of every atom in your body is nothing but empty space. And there's a little tiny piece that's particle. And if you, I just heard this again yesterday, if you take all the pieces of particle of every human being, the 8 billion people on the planet, it equals about the size of a sugar cube. And the rest yeah. is empty space. But we spend so much time focused on the physical and the material without looking about, okay, what's the, what's the quantum? And when you read Love Letters to the Virgin Mary, the, the subtitle is The Resurrection of King David. It's, it's David's journey through his own kind of hell of how, like, how does he master the internal world and, and what, what's the governor, what's the navigator by which he rationalizes and comes to realize what his identity and whose identity is. But that is so much an internal game. And you know, in this day and age when there's so much exposure to social media and we're checking our phones and if you focus on one news channel or another, you get a completely different perspective of what the world is. And if you step back from that for a second, say, I can't control what happens on the media. I can't control what happens, but I can certainly control how I experience the world. Then suddenly the journey becomes internal and that's where the magic happens because that allows you to tap into a greater level of consciousness as you sort of start to appreciate that we're all quantum beings of energy. And that's like Tesla's whole idea that matters just energy vibrating a certain frequency. Exactly. And I was talking uh, years ago, I talked to Greg Braden, you know who that is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I said, hi, Greg, how are you? And he said, fine. And I said, describe your work for me. And that's all I can uh, uh, remember because I couldn't make any sense of it because it, when you start getting into quantum physics, you're talking yeah. into a completely different way of even thinking about yeah. everything. And it's, yeah. it's like I, we used to say, you know, this table, this table is not solid, but here I am. And I can, I can, I can, I, I know intellectually it's solid but when you get down to some level it is just molecules bouncing back and forth yeah it's and I, like and i was an english major in high school in college i like i hated physics in high school like i remember our physics teacher used to do charades with us because there was like one person in the class was actually smart enough to understand what he was saying <laughs> and the rest of us just needed the elective or whatever but but I, I, I honestly, Kevin, I believe that we're on the verge of when you look at, you know, what's happening with, I think in December, they just produced the first wormhole in a computer, like the collapse of time, space time, yep. the breakthrough in fusion energy. I just was, I had dinner with my mom last night and I was telling her, I saw this article that in 2012, scientists, or I, I'm sorry, a bioengineer and a geneticist at Harvard uploaded an ebook an electronic book into human DNA. And it was just it was like a gram of DNA, that like a little thing that would fit on the tip of your finger. And they uploaded the book 70 billion times. And then they downloaded it. And what they've deduced then is our DNA is basically a hard drive. Like a computer has a hard drive. Your DNA is a hard drive. And it is, they, they've estimated now that it can hold 13.5 billion years of information which just happens to be the same age as the universe. And so like there's a, to me, that's just another mark of we're on the verge of something now with like chat GBT and this AI that can produce business plans and everything else. To me, I see that there's, we're in the next big stage of human evolution. I recently downloaded uh, chat uh, AI and I am amazed at, at the amount of information it can produce in like a nanosecond. Yep. And it's it really is remarkable. And 
we are to the next step of where we're going to be able to manage it's because that in itself this little thing that i've got on my phone now gives can change everything it can change yeah. school it can change how people perceive themselves or their world around them um go ahead i i was on i was on it uh last week and i asked it to i said explain string theory to a fifth grader and it said string theory is a model of how the universe is created and it's like there's all these strings that we can't see them but they exist and we only experience them when we focus on something and it collapses down into a field of particles where we can see it and it was like and that literally took like you said it was i i entered the question and i got an answer probably within 10 seconds and and I just read this last month that in two years, maybe even less than two years, Google is working on a quantum computer that will be able to solve questions that our best computers now could not solve in a trillion years. And the reason for that is because we can't make the, I think it's the transistors in computers any smaller, or any thinner, because they're only a few molecules thick. Uh, and so we can't go any thinner, but quantum computing is like computing on steroids from our, our present day computing. And that's literally, you know, 18 months, two years away. I would like your opinion on something, sir, that I'm having trouble understanding. And that is given everything that you and I have been discussing here yep. and the, the amazing things that we don't know that we're just now getting an inkling about how reality actually works and how we interface with our bodies with our our soul if you will and and the and the different aspects of ourselves why are there so many people that would say oh i suppose you're the same folks who say no global warming doesn't exist even though in mount washington back east is the coldest day ever yeah. you know, on, on record that they that they had why do you think it is that there are some of us that are not willing to look at things that as they appear to be moving forward is it fear it is fear that's exactly what i was going to say i was on facebook i don't i don't get on facebook a lot um i get on there because of some communities i'm involved with but i was on last week and i saw comments from or articles pronounced from a friend of mine someone i used to work with and um they're all politically based all fear-based and that's all he that's all he was posting was this same kind of content. And I realized people like in one sense, people love the fact that smartphones can we can stream movies. We can do anything. You could be on a lake somewhere talking to someone 7000 miles away and it looks like it's real time and people like that's great. But then when you say when you start to kind of step back and collectively look at, OK, three years ago a fraction of the population was video conferencing. And now my 81 year old mom knows how to do it. Like that's a change. Quantum computing is going to be a change. AI is going to be a change. Like these things are happening and people are afraid because they have, they've kind of boxed them in with their belief systems. They've boxed themselves in to protect themselves. And what you don't realize is when you do that, you also you deny yourself access to a, a bigger picture and a bigger world. And to really appreciate the world, you have to step back and see it for what it is. And if you want to make a change in the world, you have to see it better than it is. And like, I, I mean, you know, I just saw they'd shot the balloon down, the Chinese balloon down over Montana or wherever it was. And there's the war in Ukraine and there's a new bird flu or something that could sweep up. I mean, there's all this stuff. And at any point you can focus on what's wrong but you can also focus on what's right. And that is a choice that each one of us gets to make. And if you want to like enjoy your life, you have to focus on the things that are like going well and put your energy there. You can't, I mean, it's just, it's fruitless to waste your energy on things that are beyond your control that terrify you, scare you, or, or you make them terrify you because you focus on them so much. Or you're listening to somebody in the media who has no more idea what's actually going on than you do, but is telling you some things that are just not right. And you're then believing uh, that without doing your own research. Well, and let's talk about that, right? Because the media aren't bad people, but they have a job to do and, yeah. and they have a bottom line to meet. And the media, what, what regards to what flavor you choose is a business and they have 
growth expectations. They have sales expectations. They have ad generation and all this stuff and revenue generation. And, you know, I mean, we've know we've heard for decades now, if it bleeds, it leads. And now that our media used to be back in the old days, you know, back when I was younger when we were probably younger, when you just had ABC, CBS and NBC, Yep, it was, they were fairly, at least from what I can tell back when I was that age, they were fairly objective. Like I didn't, the first real sense I had of biasness was after 9-11 when Peter Jennings said something that I thought was off color about President Bush at the time. And I was like, okay, that's, that's not objective. But now we politicize the media. There's media that says, well, we are fair and balanced and we're the most trusted news source. And, and so when that happens, people say, well, oh, that must be true. They must be. And what they don't realize, what people don't realize, is that's just a marketing angle to get you to pay more attention to what they're putting out there. And they want more clicks on their websites. They want more viewers on TV. It's just a business. You have to be able to step back from that and look objectively and say, okay, it's just like, it's, it's like Microsoft and Apple. It's just when it comes to news and media, it's just a little bit different, but it's the same concept of competition. Well, and I, I, I go a little bit farther back than you do, I'm afraid. And, <laughs> and I remember Walter Cronkite, oh. CBS Evening News, and he would, he read the news and it was like for 30 yeah. minutes and yeah. he didn't spin it. He didn't say, he didn't say, well, this happened, but this is why this happened. And it's because of those stupid Republicans or those stupid Democrats yeah. or whatever it was. He read the news. And in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but um, one of the bigger changes in the society's view of Vietnam was when Walter Cronkite came out and said, what they're telling you isn't correct. And uh, and so because every, he was Uncle Walter, everybody yeah. trusted him. Yeah. Now you, you can't trust anybody in the in the news without doing the research that you need to do, because you're right. It's all about dollars and cents. It's about clicks. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's and I just saw something from there was something that was either from like Socrates or Seneca or s somebody from long time ago. And they said, don't get involved in political things because it is it's just like a downward spiral and it really, it, I mean, I hate to say it, it really is. It's, it's fascinating to see where, you know, if I go on one channel, there's huge conspiracies about what the government's doing. If I go on the other channel, there's huge conspiracies about what the last administration did or whatever. And I look outside my window or I drive by it and the target I go to is always packed. I'm like, well, we, we don't live in a police state. Like it can't be that bad because people are shopping all the time. It's, it's like, I know this is in Russia. Like I've seen people protest and no one gets taken away by the thought police like they do in the Soviet or the, in Russia. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing to me what people will buy into. And again, it's, it's fear based. And like, I mean, we talked about it. That is always available. That is a hundred percent always available. If you want to find out what's wrong in the world, you can absolutely go find it. But that just means you're blocking out and ignoring and denying everything that's right. One of the things I don't talk about a lot, but it's been on my mind of late, is that uh, um, there is now, you know, because of social media, you got people that are having voices who really have got no background on, and they have an agenda of what they're trying to spin as far as what's going on now, the, the QAnon people, as an example, um, they've, they've got this conspiracy, these theories now. And one of them is they are, what I think it's really insidious is, is they're taking their religious philosophy in some manner or form, taking their QAnon theory in some manner or form and blending them together so that they can now say that we are, the good people and we are this and the other people are the bad people. And, and, and they're making it like the second coming and the, and together we are all one We're, where we go, one, we go all and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. They're making it very, very difficult for real people to have a dialogue that makes any sense at all. Uh, and that's, that I think hopefully, you know, we're going to clear that up, but it seems to be a real problem. What do you think? Um, I heard Jordan Peterson, uh, I, I, he's such a fascinating man. I would love to speak with him sometime, just talk to him about some things. Um, but I heard him 
let's say it was last fall to talk about how like Christianity in the United States has a moral authority that it doesn't, it hasn't earned, like it doesn't deserve. And to me, I look, I look at that and uh, like, whether it's QAnon or the Republicans, you know, I, I saw something from, I think, DeSantis, like in Florida talking about Jesus and, you know, Christianity as a weapon in politics has never played out well. Like it didn't play out for the Romans well, didn't play out for the French, didn't play out for the Spanish, didn't play out for the English. And it really didn't play out in the United States very well either. And to me, there's a cause and effect there if you go back through history and understand that. But it's it's disappointing because, again, that's fear-based. And if you really, if you follow Christianity, the whole premise, my contention is to be more Christ-like, then there should be no fear. You should have no fear because that's the whole message of that religion. But it gets abused and distorted into a political weapon as an us versus them. And to me, that is a very bastardized version of what that religion is meant to be. I I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in a Lutheran family and stuff. <laughs> I was laughing because uh, um, they were, I was reading an article about famous people's houses mm-hmm. and expensive houses. And they had Michael Jordan's house and they had, well, Joel Olstein who is a pastor of a megachurch, yeah. has a $10 million house. And it was like, I thought to myself, now, if Jesus were to come back today, I can pretty much assure you he would not be living in a $10 million house. He would be giving $10 million to people so that they could eat, but he wouldn't be living in a $10 million house for himself or have a private airplane or any of those. Of course, he could probably fly around all by himself. But in, <laughs> but in, in any event, you know, I, and I, that's why work that you're doing and people like you are so damned important right now. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I don't, I don't know a lot about um, Mr. Olstein. Um, I've seen, I've seen like, I've seen some of his sermons and the church he serves is huge. I do think it's my contention. And like, even though I look at my growing up experience, my dad was in the Marines, Vietnam veteran. We were raised Protestant United Methodist and Christianity that I like, that I remember growing up was very old Testament, like very, like very old Testament. And I still think that's what carries a lot of weight and it's because that is the more forceful part of the Bible story. Like when you talk about Jesus and peace and love and, you know, if you believe in me, you can move mountains and all this other stuff that gets lost because it feels like people feel like we have to go Old Testament on people to get them to buy into the story. But ultimately, there's a great there's a great movie I saw uh, last fall called Silence. And it was about, I want to think, I think it was Spanish missionaries who went to Japan in like the, maybe the 1700s or 1800s. And obviously in Japan, they don't practice Christianity and they were persecuted for trying to convert people to Christianity. And they ended up, there were like two of them and they were three of them and they ended up killing two and the other one they let live there. And the whole message of the story, the movie, name of the movie is called Silence, but the whole premise behind the story was what you believe is completely up to you. Like no one can make you believe anything. At the end of the day, you have to reconcile your beliefs with your creator. If you're an atheist, then you have to reconcile that, okay, this is all spontaneously just happened and I'm going to dissolve into dust or whatever, but you have to do that reconciliation yourself. And it was a, it was a great movie in that it just made me appreciate you can't, you can't use religion as a weapon because it, like you can't force people to believe something. They have to come to that themselves. And that's why I always, my, my sense is I, I grew up a Republican and I've, I've softened my stance a little bit because my sense is nobody owns Jesus one. And it's certainly not Christianity certainly isn't the domain of a particular political party. Like that is absurd to me. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. By the way, we're talking with David Richards. He's written the book that's currently out, Love Letters to the Virgin Mary, The Resurrection of King David. I'm going to have to get that book. I haven't read it yet. I, I will to. send you a copy. I will send you a signed copy because I've, I've enjoyed both the times we've talked. 
Well, I've enjoyed this tremendously, and I want to have you back on um, the show that I do for KKMW because I think their message and and stuff would really resonate with a lot of the people that are on that particular show. So we'll get oh. together and figure that part out. That sounds but, great. It, but if somebody wants to go to your website, it's davidrichardsauthor.com and go to the books, and he's got media stuff. He's, you do workshops. You do all kinds of stuff. So. Yeah. So I really appreciate you having you being here. Um, I could talk to you all day, but I've got another podcast I got to go do. So. No, Kevin, thank you so much for having me on again. It's a pleasure. I would love to connect with you again. I'm so excited. I mean, I think we're living in the greatest moment in human history with all of the things that are happening. Um, it's a great time to be alive, and it's up to uh, each one of us to make the most of it. If you want my opinion, I we came here at this time because of this reason. Because this is the most important time in history, and we wanted to be part of it. Yeah, uh, that's my my humble opinion. So, for whatever that's worth, and that and a buck will get you a cup of coffee. So maybe. Uh, so, but uh, David Richards, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything you'd like to add before we have to go? Uh, the last thing I'll say is just remember that life happens for you, not to you. It looks like it's happening to you, but it's really happening for you. And you're, the experiences that you get today will carry with you to till tomorrow, and they will become the person that you become. At least that's that's my thoughts. I love it. So, David, thank you so much for being here. Kevin, thank you so much. And if you wait right there, I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... Be kind to one another because each other's all we got.